0: Fifty years ago, we pioneered a path to the moon. The trail we blazed, cut through the fictions of science, and showed us all what was possible. It's very pretty out here. Today, our calling to explore is even greater. To go farther, we must be able to sustain missions of greater distance and duration. We must use the resources we find at our destinations. We must overcome radiation, isolation, gravity, and extreme environments like never before. These are the challenges we face to push the bounds of humanity. We're going to the moon to stay by 2024.
1: NASA is going to the moon again, but this time we're going there to stay, to build a base and prepare for our journey onto Mars and beyond. So in this first episode of our new series looking at NASA, We're going to look at the importance of this return to our lunar past, and we'll go behind the scenes at NASA's Kennedy Space Centre to explore the rapid development process of preparing for these next missions.
2: As you know, the President has given our agency the bold charge to land the next man and the first woman on the lunar South Pole by 2024.
1: That's the NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, and if we're going to make that ambitious timeline of 2024... There is an awful lot that we need to do before we can leave Earth and build a permanent base on the Moon.
2: This all starts with the ability to get larger, heavier payloads off planet and beyond Earth's gravity.
1: For this, we design an entirely new rocket. The Space Launch System. SLS will be the most powerful rocket ever developed.
2: And with components in production, and more in testing, this system is capable of being the catalyst for deep space missions. We need a capsule that can support
0: humans from launch through deep space and return safely back to
1: Earth. Eugene Cernan was the last person to walk on the moon in 1972. And until this current push to go back, all development for manned lunar missions basically stopped. Bob, uh,
0: this is Gene and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon in taurus literal. We leave as we came, and God willing as we shall return, with peace and in hope, for all mankind. Godspeed to crew of Apollo 17.
3: All uh, right, Gino, thank you very much.
1: This is part one of our NASA series. And right after this break, we'll take a look at why going back to the moon, is so very important. Eugene Cernan spoke of how he hoped humans would one day return to the moon. And that future that he spoke about is happening right now. But we can't just reuse all the equipment that we took to the moon the first time. So everything, and I mean every component from the landers right through to the launch capsule needs to be redesigned and developed for our modern technology. And when we go back, we're actually going to build a base there, and that will allow people to actually live on the moon's surface for extended periods, and we can then use that as a launch pad to Mars. But before we look at what's happening at NASA for those new missions to the moon, which will be called Artemis. Let's take a look back at the original Apollo missions and the huge amount of work that went into building everything needed to go there.
3: Hey everyone, if you gather up for a second. um, Lamar's gonna give us a quick overview, um, some of the history uh, in this building and then I'll take some questions if y'all have any.
1: I'm at the NASA Kennedy Space Center on a special behind-the-scenes tour the team put on for podcasters who are interested in content about the future, and we're standing below one of the Saturn V rockets that, in July of 1969, took the Apollo astronauts to the moon.
3: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one... Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. off on Apollo 11. Tower cleared.
2: here we got a
3: roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting their roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo
0: 11 on a proper heading.
1: That was 50 years ago, and I'd heard many things about the Saturn V rockets. Well,. Wow. So huge. But at 111 meters tall, nothing prepares you for the sheer scale of this thing. When fueled and ready to launch, the Saturn V rockets weighed 2.8 million kilograms. And one of the people who worked on these rockets was Lamar Russell. I
0: came to work here in 1966 as a young guy with brown hair. We wore white shirts, little skinny ties. We had uh, pocket protectors filled with pencils. We had uh, IBM uh, computer cards, cause not because we were writing computer programs. They're the world's greatest note cards. So we uh, did that. By the way, that pocket protector later evolved into the uh, nickname of a nerd bucket. <clears throat> so anyway, brings us up to date. What I'm gonna do for you this morning I'm going to answer any questions you got about this vehicle. I worked on it for all the years we had it as an electrical systems engineer. I was an electrical engineer for NASA, and then later uh, I worked on the space shuttle.
1: Lamar is one of those people who absolutely loved his work. So much so that when he retired, he started volunteering at the Space Center to tell people about the history of this massive spacecraft that he worked on. This Saturn V rocket that we're standing under is one of three still in existence, which were being built for moon missions in the 1970s. However, when the program was cancelled, the rockets had nowhere to go. And this particular rocket sat around for a few decades, outside, weathering in the elements, until in the 90s, NASA decided to restore it and protect it. So they built a huge building around it so people can tour the facility and see what the Apollo missions were all about.
0: The whole point of this vehicle is to hold enough en- energy to burn it through the engine and blow it out the back and go fast. And so you did it in stages and then finally the Apollo spacecraft and the lunar module got to the moon and did their mission.
1: We know the Apollo program was rushed. It was May 25th 1961, when John F. Kennedy made his speech calling for the U.S. to put humans on the moon before the end of the decade.
3: No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish.
1: And at the time, none of the technology to make that dream possible existed. So the way NASA went about that mission was hiring every smart person that they could. And in 1966, Lamar became one of those people, and there was an awful lot of pressure to make sure they stuck to their deadline.
0: So we threw on manpower and overtime and dollars and equipment and modifications and we're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week here at the Space Center. And all around the nation in the in the space agencies. We had a total of about 25,000 people working here at Kennedy Space Center at the peak. Out of that 25,000 probably a quarter of them were engineers. The rest are technicians and and support engineer technicians and support people and heavy equipment operators and crane operators and all that stuff. You got a big facility here just to maintain. But the engineering was done by a smaller group of people because you can take engineering and you put the prints down, you figure out what you're gonna do, you get it all uh, documented, you spread it out to the technicians and they go do the work. So you need a smaller cadre of people to work the paper and the engineers. And then of course, uh, in the firing room, you got a whole, all those people are engineers. When you see that film of all that crowd in the firing room, about 300 people. I was one of those guys. We all had brown hair, as I said. Wore skinny ties, and uh, we talked in headsets. We had a headset, an earphone, and a and a microphone. We called the headset the C clamp. It just went on like a C clamp, you know, click, bink. So, are you on duty? Yes, I'm up here in my C clamp. So. Uh, the slang started, we had lots of slang words, and we had lots of humour, but a lot of hard work.
1: And we'll be back with more of our tour at the NASA Kennedy Space Centre, right after this quick break. Welcome back to Moonshot. And before we get back to our NASA tour... Let's take a moment to talk about the importance of the Apollo 11 mission to everything that we're doing in space right now. The truth is, had the US not been at war with the Soviet Union, chances are we may not have gone to the moon at all. It was that battle that really inspired the US to think out of the box and go for the impossible dream, going to the moon
2: you really know a lot about the American side of the angle. It really still is to this day, a very nationalist patriotic thing, right? You know, a good example, it's not just, you know, Apollo 11, um, but like the first people in space, you know, John Glenn, who was the first American in space, um, uh, you know, is really always a revered figure in culture. I remember he was in textbooks when I was growing up. You don't hear… of Yuri. This
1: is Dr. Brad Tucker, an astrophysicist at the Australian National University in Canberra, and he's talking about Yuri Gagarin, the first human ever in space, and a Russian. And it was that moment, on April 12, 1961, which really inspired John F. Kennedy to focus his attention on sending man to the moon, because he didn't want the Russians to also claim that achievement.
3: President, uh, don't you agree we should try to get to the moon before the Russians if we can? If we can get to the moon uh, before the Russians, uh, we should. And isn't it your responsibility to apply the, uh, the, uh, the vigorous leadership uh, to spark up this program? When you say spark up the program, we first have to make a judgment based on the best information we can get whether we can be ahead of the Russians to the moon. We're now talking about a program which may be, uh, which are many years away.
1: This is President John F. Kennedy speaking at a press conference on the 21st of April 1961, just over a month before his famous and inspirational moon speech. And at this point, he doesn't seem all that inspired.
3: The Saturn is still on a 40-hour week, isn't it, Mr. President? We have, uh, as I say, uh, appropriated... uh $126 million more to the Saturn, and we are attempting to find out what else we can do. The Saturn is still going to put us well behind.
2: Saturn does not offer any
3: hope of going to the, being first to the moon. The Saturn is several years behind the Soviet Union. I can just say to you that regardless of how much money we spend on the Saturn, the Saturn is going to put us, we're still going to be second. The question is whether the nuclear rocket or other kinds of chemical rockets offer us a better hope of making A jump forward, but we are second in the uh, and the Saturn will not put us first.
2: And, you know, people were glued to it because of that competition aspect, you know, that it was this competition between the US and Russia and they maybe weren't focusing on how hard it was that, you know, it was really something challenging and can lead to big things. But and this is why I think it made the moon landing of Apollo 11 that much bigger. When it came time to the mission launch, and they were about to land, and the people started to realize what holy crap, this is this is real. They're landing on a different place that has not the earth. They're going to walk somewhere else. They're going to do somewhere else. this this actually can happen. This isn't a mouthpiece. This isn't a race. This is real people, you know, in in all sense of the word, going where no one's gone before, doing something unique, something that hasn't. Ever been done. And I think it's why it's made the Apollo moon landing that much bigger. You know, people, you know, often talk about how big it was. It is the event of which other events are compared to, right? People always say, oh, it'll be as big as the moon landing. Oh, you remember it where you were like the moon landing. People use this event to compare other big events. So you know it is kind of like the biggest event. And I think it is because it finally made people realize. This is possible. You can do these things if you set your mind to it. It doesn't have to be a mouthpiece. There are, you know, the creativity and ingenuity of people and hardworking nature scientists and engineers can lead to these seemingly impossible things in seemingly impossible time frames. And I think that's part of its legacy.
1: And for Lamar Russell and all the other NASA engineers involved... That moment when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong touched down the Eagle lunar module on the moon's surface was a moment of massive relief.
0: That is probably the most satisfying feeling, the most satisfied, relieved group of people in the world. As you've uh, heard on the film clip, we got a lot of people. We're breathing again, and people are uh, turning blue. when he sat down on the moon. Everybody breathed a sigh of relief. We knew we were going to get it done. One way or the other, we are going to get it done. And so we got it done that day. And I remember the moon landing was at nighttime in the United States. so I I didn't have any duties at night here. I had worked the launch of Apollo 11. I had worked all the other launches, but I didn't have any duties for third shift. So I'm at home with the family. We watched it on TV, like everybody
3: else. Four forward, drifting to the right a little. I think, and a half. 30 seconds forward, drifting. Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Drifting, uh, tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.
0: Landed. Man on the moon. Everybody uh, breathed deep. Very, very fine and it took a while for it to, to it sink to it. in. It's like a and I remember walking out in the backyard yeah, that night before fine. I went to bed, and I looked up at the full moon. We landed in the full moon on purpose, so you have good light for landing. I looked up there, and I remembered that there are footprints up there now. I'm going to step off the land now. And I helped put them there. And that was the feeling we all had. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Going into space is not safe. It's risky business but we make it as safe as possible, and we do a risk assessment on every change we make and every decision we make, and there is a whole discipline about risk assessment. It's laid out a couple of ways, but you multiply probability of occurrence with consequence, and you get a score, and that score winds up in the red zone, the yellow zone, or the green zone. If it's in the red zone, you've got two choices, design that problem out or don't do it. Everything in the yellow zone, now you've got a decision to make. What safeguards or backups do we have? Green zone, green zone is good. So we did risk assessments for everything we did. Astronauts are a part of that. They uh, worked with us in meetings. Then they went home and worked in simulators. Meanwhile, we're assembling a safe vehicle.
1: The Apollo missions ended in 1972. Which left all those NASA engineers who had been hired for Apollo wondering, what next? Where do we go from here? But thanks to budget cuts, they didn't really have a lot of options.
0: When the project ended, the the pace slowed down. Then we had to breathe deep and figure where we are going to go next. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the agency about what do we do, what are we going to work on? And so we convinced the uh, White House that we needed to build a reusable space vehicle so we could bring these big engines back instead of dumping them in the ocean. So that was the, and the airframe, of course, and the crew. But we did, we, uh, did that debate and planning. Meanwhile, while the debate was going on, we had a workforce here that was steadily being laid off and diminished because we didn't need it. That caused a great deal of hardship, both here in Brevard County and around the Johnson Space Center. A lot of people were let go, didn't have work for them. And then we gradually built back up again to build the space shuttle. We started designing the launch pads for a new uh, configuration. We built the new uh, orbiter processing facilities and the main difference is we uh, built that Orbiter orbiter processing facilities brought the orbiters in there, worked on them like airplanes, and then brought them over to the VAB and stacked them just like Saturn Vs, mated them with the external tank and the solid boosters. The work pace was a little less, uh, well, it was was relaxed. It was a more relaxed work pace because we didn't have a deadline. We had the requirement to do it safely. So everything was checked, double checked. Lots of meetings, lots of planning, lots of engineering debates, compromises were made and as you know, the compromises on the space shuttle were just a bundle of compromises. And that's the way it was built.
1: The first space shuttle launched on April 12, 1981 and they flew 135 missions across the 30 years and the program ended in 2011 with the Atlantis shuttle which is now on display at the space centre so that everyone can see it, and it's in the condition that it was when it landed. And I'm not going to spend too much time dwelling on the space shuttle missions, because we're here to talk about the Moon. And in our next episode of Moonshot, we're going to find out exactly what's involved in sending the new Artemis rockets to space.
3: These crawlers were built, of course, for the Apollo program by Marion Power & Shovel, uh, which is a mining company. And they were built about 1965 66 This one was built after Crawler 1.
0: And, uh, but we chose this one to uh, go for the Artemis program, and so we've done all the modifications to this crawler. Um, so it has the capability of carry, carrying a heavy load.
1: This episode of Moonshot is hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson, with additional production by James Parkinson. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music and all the other music that you hear in this episode, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you love what we're doing with Moonshot, you can get bonus episodes and merch by visiting our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash moonshot. Stay tuned for part two of our NASA series next time on Moonshot.